This is The Lonely Office, and this is your playbook for navigating the messy line between work and life. Our topics are sourced from real, anonymous workplace conversations happening within Glassdoor communities, from how to get fired the right way, I know about that, to whether HR is actually your friend. We discuss timely work-life issues so you don't have to brave the professional world alone. Okay, this is a fun episode. Biggest mistakes ever at work. That's the trending topic, huh? Yeah, I want to tell you about Zach. Zach is a young marketer. He's at an architectural firm in the Midwest, and he's tasked with creating 100,000 trifold brochures for direct mail, trade shows, etc. Trifold brochures. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the key features of the brochure was a custom QR code that people can use to take them right to the firm's website. Right. Do it all the time. Yeah, but the problem is, Matt, Zach wasn't super familiar with how to create QR codes. Oh, no. He didn't say anything to his manager because he didn't want to seem green. You know what Uh, I'm saying? This is not going to end well. So he's working late. He's got multiple tabs open on his browser. Now, it's worth noting that Zach is a huge fan of anime. Uh Uh-huh. And at the same time, he's working on figuring out how to make a QR code for the brochure. Mm. He's also trying to secure tickets to an upcoming Comic-Con. <laughs> Stop. Gen Z, right? He's multitasking. Right. So he's toggling between all these computer tabs and eventually finalizes the QR code. Okay. He hits the deadline. Brochures are printed, shipped. Zach is feeling great until, here we go, a week later, he gets this urgent email in his work inbox. It's from his manager <laughs> asking, why all the traffic from the QR code on the brochures is being directed to the Neon Genesis Evangelion (laughs) exhibit at the upcoming (laughs) Comic-Con. Oh, man. Zach, I cannot believe he didn't double, triple, quadruple check the QR code before he sent things to ship. And have someone else check it. That's the key. Yeah. Where's the manager in all this? I will say... I worked on a direct mail project and the return envelope was sent to the wrong address. And it was not my (laughs) fault, but it's still like, why didn't somebody catch this? Were you able to identify the address it was sent to? It was another address that the company used for another piece of their business. It wasn't being sent to the Comic-Con. No, but there was that initial (laughs) reaction of everyone finger pointing instead of hand raising. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if Zach is a new hire or maybe a fresh grad out of college, but one certainty he's going to discover in the workplace is that there will be mistakes. There's a tendency amongst particularly young professionals to approach the workplace having a stated goal of preventing any mistake, kind of this utopian picture Mm. perfection. I think being new to the workplace or really new to any job, there's so little that you know with certainty. But the one thing you do know is without fail, you will encounter change. And with that change, you can count on the fact you will make mistakes. And those mistakes will be costly to your company. Sometimes they'll be costly to the trust and confidence you may have built with your coworkers. From my experience, a decade and a half of building companies, the best work mantra or work philosophy ever shared with me was by a former Marine turned startup operator. And his advice was, the only constant in life is change. So acclimate to it and get used to it. And it's funny, almost a decade later, I still find this to be the best reality reflecting 
advice for first-time founders to internalize. Even if you're not a founder building a company, when you recognize that change is an inevitable agent acting in your work life, you also recognize that mistakes will then, by definition, occur. And the only thing left to do is incur the costs of the mistake, learn and move on. An Argentine writer, Jorge Luis Borges, has a relevant quote on this. And his quote is, if I were able to live my life again, I would commit the same errors, but just a bit earlier so I could get over them sooner. And I absolutely love that quote or a version of that quote, because rather than living within a psychological fortress where perfection is the goal and anxiety and stress are just right around the corner, the moment a mistake is realized, when you recognize what's actually in our control within a constantly changing environment, all you can do is absorb the mistake, correct it, and move on, and handle the changes as well as the mistakes that await you. I kind of want to start by just hearing from all of us some of the mistakes that I'm sure we all made. I could spur the imagination or spur our memories a bit by reading from some fishbowl glass door threads. I would love that. I just picked a few here. There's so many, honestly. And in this one, a staff accountant on Fishbowl wrote, a friend forwarded me an email that she received from HR letting all the managers know that Susie Admin had left the firm to pursue other opportunities. I replied back to this email saying that that was a bunch of BS. Susie's been fired. We actually know why. She didn't leave the firm. It turns out, though, <laughs> I didn't just reply to my friend. I replied back to the entire HR oh my thread. Gosh. I came back from lunch and went straight to the HR to try to mitigate the damage and apologize. I had an AIM incident. This was obviously a very long time ago when that's what we were using instead of Slack. And the other junior account person thought he was messaging me complaining about our boss, but messaged our boss. Right. And she was also upset with me. And I'm like, dude, I'm not involved. He did it, which is not the best way to handle things when you've screwed up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's better to own up to it and apologize sincerely. Just reading a quick, another one. So this is coming from a senior manager. Three times in a row, I scheduled team calls with a client and I forgot to include the client every single time. So I wasted six people's time on three different occasions because I never included the client on the meeting call. So that's an example of like a mistake of overlooking something, but I could be pretty angry, honestly, if that happened to me. And then the last one, as a first year associate, I accidentally typed pornhub.com instead of grubhub.com. Oh, no. Freudian slip there. In the address bar of my work computer while at the client site ordering for all the clients who were crowded around my computer. No. It's like these different categories of mistakes. And when I was thinking about this, oh, have I made a Zach level mistake? I know for me, I've made a lot more of the slip-ups, right? The reply-all mistake. I keep referencing one of my first jobs after I pivoted from touring as a performer to then at least working at a steady nine-to-five marketing job. It was at a church. And I've actually had people recently from the church, they're listening to this podcast. Oh. But that job was really formative in my experience because even though it was a church, they were progressive and they ran like a business, right? Mm. right? You had the board, which is like the board of the directors. And my boss was the pastor of the church. And so oftentimes our communication would be after hours, like after 5 p.m. via text. Right. I got two text threads, I'm in trouble because I had one going with my girlfriend at the time. 
And I had another one with my pastor. We were planning the service. I'm talking to her. I'm talking to him. I'm talking to her. I'm talking to him. Next thing I know, I make a comment. It's not crazy, but I just said something to my girlfriend like, hey, I love the way you look when you walk out of a room. But I sent that to my pastor. (laughs) He doesn't respond. I can't edit. This was like, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. No editorial on iPhones. He says nothing. I don't sleep that night. I have to go into the office. And he was so graceful about it. We laughed about it. I tell you, though, even to the end of my tenure, I think he looked at me a little different. (laughs) I'm sure he did. (laughs) There are moments of slip-ups and types of mistakes where you can get over. But sometimes maybe there's spaces where you can't. I'll share one really quickly from my first startup. I got to a point where I had essentially three clients, right? And when you're that small, the client knows you really well. It's like, you, maybe you have a co-founder and you have like two employees and he knows you, he knows the way you think and he notices the clothes you wear. <laughs> so for this particular client, we went through a patch where we weren't quite living to our statement of work, SOW expectations. We were getting better, but we weren't quite there. And we just got paid, let's say a week before I came in for a visit into the office. And prior to this particular visit, I usually was dressed in a certain way, fairly casual. For some reason, I decided to dress up this outing, and this was right after getting paid by this client. I put on a fancy pair of shoes and a nice pair of slacks, and I walked in to this client's office, and the first thing he noted, he just looked down at my shoes. He's like, I see where my money's going towards. You know, that was a very awkward, I think the mistake there was at that level of business, you need to be cognizant of this stuff, right? And particularly if you're in a bad patch with a client, and they're not too happy with you, and you just got paid, you should probably be a little careful on how you present yourself. Leah, any hidden disasters that we don't know about? When I had sort of reached the mid-manager level, I just wanted to make sure that everything was going right for my client. I wanted to make sure they were meeting all of the deadlines we had given them so that the work launched on time. Right. And so I guess I was driving the client somewhat crazy. My managers went in to get, and this is a huge international CPG company, went in, do the like review of the agency. And one of the pieces of feedback was that they literally had a nickname for me. I just bothered them so much that I was constantly emailing. (laughs) So then they came back and I was like, what was the report? I know I'm doing a great job. One of my bosses had to sit me down and be like, they find you annoying. You're emailing them so much that they find you annoying. And I was so mortified. I was about to cry when my boss told me, but instead I was like, you know what? No, that's okay. That's something I can really easily fix, but it's still so embarrassing. In those instances, it's so natural for one to want to take that criticism personally as, hey, this is an indictment against who I am and my personality. When you enter the workforce, particularly out of college, you quickly realize it's not just about the quality of the work you do, but it's about how you do that work with others. So you get almost as much points or lose as much points on how you do the work and how you interact with others and how others perceive and enjoy or don't enjoy working with you. And for better or worse, that's just kind of a reality for most jobs. When you recognize that, Actually, for some people, it disarms the scenario because like, oh, wait, I can actually bring my personality into the work a bit and not just rely on perfect execution, but rely on interpersonal skills. Matt, when you talk about removing the emotions, 
I can relate to Zach. Early on in my career, I was afraid to have hard conversations. And sometimes when I would get a criticism, I would shut down because I was afraid or I would double down on contextualization, which I still, as you know, I'm a big contextual guy, but I do think there's also on the other side, a responsibility from the leadership standpoint, managerial standpoint to help guide a Zach or an Aaron or anybody in our careers to be able to give said context because I've seen the other side of the coin. It's a catch-22, definitely, because if you're not on top of things, then it's your fault. I honestly think the first thought in my head was, oh, well, fine. If you guys don't care about it, I don't care about it either. And then I was like, no, that's not going to be the right way to handle this. And now people always tell me that I'm great under pressure, that I don't freak out when there's bad news or that. And I do think that that... To your Argentine philosopher's point, I think that was <laughs> I hate a writer. It's a writer. It's a poet. <laughs> sure, that was <laughs> that was a lesson that I learned pretty early in my career. That was really, really helpful. Always just admit when you don't know something, because faking it is is always the wrong choice. Just because you distance yourself emotionally from a situation doesn't mean you don't care. I think too many of us, particularly when we we're young. We associate being emotional and passionate with caring. And so now if I'm a little dispassionate or a little unemotional, then I don't care. And I think that's fundamentally not true at all. Have you felt like, Matt, because I've felt that I have to sometimes remind people that I am as concerned about this issue as you are. I'm just trying to find a solution as opposed to just us all sitting in a room and panicking about it. (laughs) I feel like I have to remind people of that, though. They're like, you don't seem worried. And I'm like, I am very worried. But like, we have to fix it. Yeah, you have to articulate yourself in that scenario. And look, there's a lot of popular literature. So one book that comes to mind that I'm sure you've heard the title before, The Subtle Art of Not Giving Up. But the point of that book is not be indifferent. Sure. Silent quitting. That's not the point of the book. The point of the book is exactly what we're talking about is provide a little emotional distance between yourself and your work so that you can evaluate it objectively. When we make a mistake, we tend to replay that moment time and time again in our head. And 60, 80% of the time, the people that incurred the cost of that mistake don't even recall it. It was like an interaction. And you just, as an overachiever, carry this as a burden. And so when you start recognizing this, particularly as a young professional worker, it's not that you stop giving a I think that's the outrageous title at play there. It's that you become a little more even keeled and measured and you do remove some of the emotion from the equation. I think that's healthy. I'm just actually having a lot of head nod moments with both of you. One thing I'm thinking about, Matt, is how important it may be for someone in their early career, like a Zach, to actually seek out a mentor. I never did that in my career. In fact, I was just like, it's just me against the world. I came in with a sense of like a chip on my shoulder. I'm learning more from Matt because of that detachment. I'm going to try to be more like Matt on calls when the crisis is going on because you seem like nothing bothers you. And I know for me, even now, inside, when I'm dealing with an issue, even on this show, I'm crumbling inside. (laughs) I am crumbling, Leah. (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing. I feel like people here seek out a mentor and they take it really literally. Like, I should go find a person and be like, will you be my mentor? It's more about, I would say, building a relationship with someone senior and getting their advice. When you Like, Zach could have asked that person to check his QR code, for instance. Or just said, hey, I don't really want to say this to my boss because it's a little embarrassing, but I don't know how to make a QR code. You've got to have a person you feel comfortable with. That for me is one of the things that always frustrated me 
when I did have reports is why questions weren't being asked. The first 30 to 60 days, particularly at any company, that's a free for all. You can ask any question to any who, and everybody's going to smile and not judge you for it. The one thing I would actually do differently, if I can go back and to use Aaron's metaphor of the DeLorean. Let's go back in time. 36 days of every job, I would just be asking all the questions that I toiled over for months trying to figure out on my own or trying to learn through observation or just trial by fire. I would say, no, I'm going to ask these questions in the first 36 days and get it out of the way. And so now I'm in a management position. I always do try to make it abundantly clear, like, please ask questions, particularly for new hires. Because this is a get out of jail free card. You could ask any question. There's no stupid question for the first 90 days. Yeah. It's something I learned that you often literally have to tell people there, please ask questions if you don't know how to do this or you don't know what I'm talking about. Do you feel that when you were younger, perhaps a younger version of yourself, you equated making mistakes with failing? Oh, totally. Yeah. Right. In my 20s, when I screwed up, I did that sort of cycle of obsessing on it, really, really worrying about it and feeling like it was a personal failure. Right. It's not helpful. Doesn't help you do a better job (laughs) when you go into work the next day. And I think this is important moment here, at least to cite thinking from the worker's perspective and their mental state in the moment prior to, let's say, a Zach not telling his manager that he's worried. I know for me early on that the pressure of student debt, I know we've talked about that in way earlier episodes, trying to monetize art in the business sector and those lean years, while at the same time having a daughter on the way, moving locales. It was rough years, man. It was really rough. Oftentimes when you're in an economic situation where you're fearful or you're one eviction notice away, you're careful at work. And some people thrive in that from a performance standpoint. I know for me, it really affected the way I interacted with people at work and my managers and being able to just ask questions like you both were saying. I never asked a single thing. I never wanted to show weakness because I was so afraid that I was going to be fired. Even in that six days, I didn't believe it. When you said, feel free to ask questions, that was code for me to shut the F up, do your job and don't bother me. Because oftentimes people say ask questions and then they give you an annoyed look like, hey, only email me once a day. You just reminded me that when I was probably the most anxious was also when I was on a work visa working in London. So if Mm. I lost my job, I would have to figure out a new visa. Very, very stressful during a recession. (laughs) But I think I had a great team who sort of encouraged me to ask questions and grow. Back to the original question of whether making a mistake equates to failure. I shared this with you, Aaron, earlier. Probably the most expensive mistake I ever made, I can quantify it, it was around a half a million dollar mistake in around 15 minutes worth of time. One of my early clients, again, my first startup, as you notice a lot of mistakes with my first startup. The good news is for future clients of mine, my third startup, I've already got them out of the way. So don't hold it against (laughs) me. For one particular client, it's a well-known flower company. They make money two days a year. They make money on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day. And so if you're going to service a public flowers company, you better have your shit together on those two days of year. Well, On one of those days of the year, we happened to not have our shit together. Our software, which was designed to live on the e-commerce product pages, caused some of those pages to go down for just about 15, 30 minutes. So I got a call from the CMO at the time. He said, this is how much you cost us. And in that moment in time, I recall thinking, I failed. It's over. But 
even then, with some of the advice that I had mentioned earlier around, I was able to own the mistake. We went in as a team. We had a big postmortem, what we did wrong in excruciating detail. Of course, I heard a lot, rightfully so. But where we ended up was they basically trusted us that we resolved the issue. And so that mistake could have led to failure if we couldn't convince them that this was resolvable. But the fact that we were able to go in postmortem and show that, hey, this is exactly how we can fix this technical bug. It will not happen again. And if it does, fire us. Prevented it from being a failure. I really believe that differentiating between mistake and failure is really important. It's a long journey. You're going to have multiple opportunities to redeem yourself. There was a thread on Glassdoor, a fishbowl, where it said, in my experience, I always thought mistakes were worse than my manager did. I would feel like it's the end of the world, but the manager really only wants to figure out a solution and then move on. Sometimes the big key, the awakening for me was like, wait a second, these are just people trying to find solutions. And mistakes are part of that process. That humanized it for me. It's not just like, oh, you're in trouble with the principal. We kind of grow up in this industrialized education system where it's like, you're in trouble. This is like, yeah, you might be in trouble, but really we're all in the same boat here. We're just trying to find a solution. And as long as I'm geared towards that, a bump in the road doesn't mean we're still not driving towards the lighthouse. I feel like I had a similar awakening that we're all adults here. So if you've sincerely apologized and you're actively working with your manager or client to solve the problem, what else can you ask for? Also, taking it back to the Zach story, if you're relatively junior, your mistake is your manager's mistake. That's right. The manager probably shouldn't have just passed off a trifold brochure and a QR code to this <laughs> junior employee and without ever checking back before print right. to make sure everything was okay. I don't know. And also, in my experience, the sort of big problems that people I've been managing have had have been <laughs> minor problems in the scope of what I'm doing. Like I think once you get more right. senior, when you do have a problem, it's more of a $100,000 problem and not a right. $10 problem. <laughs> Outside of this mental framework of sorts, embrace the fact that there's change happening and the fact that mistakes are going to happen. What tactically can a new hire a fresh grad out of college entering the workforce for the first time do coming into the workplace based on your years as a manager? I mean, we've already talked about asking lots of questions and asking various people questions. You don't have to just go to your manager if you're not clear on something. Right. You can sort of ask around the company. There's tons of subject matter experts. Right. And then once you do make a mistake, make sure you have a game plan. Make sure right. you've got your bullet points out what you're going to talk about. The same thing is when you f*** up. <laughs> You go to your manager and you're like, I did this. This is how I'm already addressing it. This is That's right. what I would probably need from you to really right. make it right. And I've put X, Y, Z things in place to make sure it never happens again. But Matt, like from a leadership point of view, having that trust and that culture where someone can talk to various leadership being able to go to different departments and ask questions, there has to be a culture there to make the new hire feel like that. Yeah. No, it takes two to tango, right? I mean, so the culture has to be there and the culture is established by the leader in order for the Zach or someone else to ask or feel comfortable to ask questions. They need to have heard their CEO or their manager multiple times reinforce an operational framework where we prefer for questions to get asked and resolve versus do shit on your own and stumble and then come out, possibly come out on the other side. No, like, we prefer questions to be asked. And just to reinforce what Leah said, if you come in and you're just apologizing, that's meaningless for the manager. They'll conclude that you're a nice person. 
but you want to gain their confidence again, right? So if you find yourself with a mistake, come up with a plan, a playbook, whatever you want to call it. And that's what they want. They actually do not want to fire you. <laughs> See, this is an important point. It's very costly from a money and time perspective for the manager of the car organization to fire. The last thing they want to do is fire you. They want you to learn from the mistake. Can I also say for any of the 23 to 25 year olds that were like me, that were always afraid of being fired, I want to reiterate Matt's point. It's not that you can't get fired. What Matt's saying, and Leah, you've echoed this too, it's hard to fire people. It's inconvenient. When I started contracting with companies, I'm like, wait a second, there's a lot of labor that goes into hiring people. They don't want to do the extra work. I'm talking to my past self. I didn't realize that there's sometimes a perception that companies have it all together. They're a well-oiled machine, but they're human. And they're just trying to solve a problem. And you can help solve that problem by just recognizing these are human beings and to not be afraid. They're your ally by definition, right? So you're not hired into an organization if the manager you're going to be reporting to hasn't to some degree signed off on it. They staked their reputation on bringing you in and they want to see you do well. And the same thing for a startup that does business with a company. That CMO, in my case, had a lot of vested interest in us continuing because he staked his reputation on doing business and brought me in. He didn't want to end up with egg on his face amongst his own colleagues and coworkers. And so when you recognize those relationship dynamics too, you realize that almost all mistakes are recoverable because the person who incurred the cost of the mistake wants to see you resolve the mistake because that helps them as well. There's a quote by Oscar Wilde that I think really sums up mistakes perfectly. His quote is, experience is simply the name we give our mistakes. Every experience that you have, there's some learnings that are happening as a result of mistakes you're enacting. I was just going to say really quickly for managers who are listening, it's also really important to share mistakes that you've made in the past or just bring junior employees in when you're dealing with mistakes that are currently happening? Because I think watching you deal with that is also a learning experience. I hope Zach listens to this episode. This was an extremely motivational episode. If he hears that (laughs) quote, I don't think he's feeling too bad. I think he should feel motivated to recover from this. Hey, you made it. Thanks for tuning in to The Lonely Office. If you like what you heard, follow us on all major podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode and make sure and tap five stars and leave a review. I know everyone says it, but it actually helps others like you discover the show. Remember, the topics you hear us talk about on the show are sourced from Glassdoor communities where professionals are having candid conversations about their careers anonymously with others in their industry. To be part of that conversation, download the Glassdoor app. And when you're in the app, make sure and join the Lonely Office Bowl. That's where we are. When you're there, you can suggest a topic idea or an episode idea, or you can make it more formal and email us at thelonelyoffice at glassdoor.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.